Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. A few weeks back, we started a new series that we've been going through ever since Easter, and we're calling it Questions God Asks. Uh, this has just turned out to be a really fun uh, time as we've been thinking about these things together, kind of flipping the tables and not so much thinking about the questions we ask God, but thinking about what are the questions that are in the Bible that he asks of us. And this clip is kind of a uh, depiction of the story we're going to look at today, which is the story of Job, whom you may know at one point turned his accusations toward God and asked him all sorts of questions. And finally, God responded with a question of his own to Job that we're going to look at in a moment. And I'd like to ask you to stand, if you would, as we kind of get to that question in Job chapter 38. And I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 11. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set, or who laid its cornerstone? While the morning stars sang together, and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors? When it burst forth from the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no farther, here's where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place that it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated, except if you are first through eighth grade, remain standing. And if you are near them, if you could extend a hand as we dismiss our young people to their classes. As you leave, may the Spirit of God make known to you the path of life and fill you with joy in His presence. The Lord be with you. Marvelous. Speaking of shouting at God, I guess that was appropriate right there. Well, I so enjoy these one service Sunday gatherings for many reasons. And one reason is because uh, gathering together like this as one local expression of Jesus' church is a vivid and even pictorial reminder that following Christ is not a do-it-yourself project. The Christian life is not an individual sport. And when we come together and we see one another and we recognize, wow, there are folks here that I never see because they go to a different service. There's something about the oneness that stands as a reminder that following Christ is not a do-it-yourself project. Paul tells the Corinthian church, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst for God's temple is sacred and you Together are that temple. As we know, much of the Old Testament 
was written to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel, and much of the New Testament was written not to individuals, but to the church, specifically Christ followers who lived in Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica, and many other cities and villages where the people of God regularly gathered together to worship Him, to feast in His honor, to remember his life and his death and his resurrection, and to mutually encourage one another in Jesus' way. And this people, this new community, was a living example of what life could be like when God was allowed to reign and be king over a people. So the church was not just a collection of individuals here and there, but a community of people whose daily lives and relationships and values and principles manifested an alternative way of living and being and relating in this world. A communal witness to the reality, the living reality of the risen Christ. This is the role of the church, to be a living witness, a communal witness to the reality of the risen Christ among us. And so when we gather together as one church on these kinds of Sundays, among many other things, we remember that I am part of something bigger, bigger than me. And I just don't get to handpick everything or everyone based on my likes or interests or preferences. I am part of something bigger than me. It's called the church. And the big C church that encompasses everybody who follows Christ really ultimately, finds its primary expression in the little c, local church. The church was established by Jesus then to be his living and breathing body in this world. A body incarnating his way. That is, a group of people fleshing out what it looks like to live in Christ so other people could see it and hear it and smell it and taste it. The church then is a witness of who he is. I am part of something bigger than me. Our differences in age, race, gender, politics, career path, income, upbringing, past, education, theology, personality, all those differences are absolutely necessary so the church can reveal the power of the risen Christ to unite people in Him and under Him who otherwise would have no reason to be together. Paul says God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. The parts that seem weaker are indispensable. I just love that when we're all gathered in one room and maybe some of us get into that thought process of, doesn't matter if I'm here. Doesn't matter if I'm part of this. I can't do such and such. So and so is so much better at whatever. Paul says the parts that seem weaker are actually indispensable. And then he says, and now you, not individual, now you, plural, are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. 
But there's another rather closely related reason why I am so glad we are gathered together here as one church today. And it is because this question God asks Job that we are thinking about today in this series confronts the notion head on that I or you or we have God figured out. It confronts the notion that we have somehow cornered the market on who God is and on how he operates in this world and how he fulfills his role as God of this world. So this question we're looking at really pokes at the notion that I or you or we or anyone controls God a really soul-stirring question to think about. And there's a build-up to the question. It kind of crescendos into this question like a pivotal scene in an action movie. So I want to read it again so you can kind of feel it. It's from Job, Job 38, verses 1 through 4. This is after God has listened to everybody talk about who he is and what he is and what's up and what's happening and why it's going on in Job's life. And God endures all of this drool that flows off of people's lips. And then it says in Job 38, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, and he said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And here's the question. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? This makes me think of a time or two when I was a little kid and I'd done something beyond wrong. So there's wrong and then there's the land beyond wrong. Or I said something that wasn't just out of line, it was way out of line. And maybe it was more than a time or two when this happened, it probably was. But it reminds me of a time or two when I was a little kid and had done something like that and my dad a man of incredibly few words, would finally sit me down to make sure I understood what can only be described as reality. So a quick flyover of the story of Job. Job loved God. Job followed God. He devoted his life to God. And for a while, his life was going along wonderfully. It was full of goodness It was full of blessing. God had poured himself out in Job's life, in his family's life, and there was all this goodness. And then it all bottomed out, and he lost absolutely everything. Famine and death and disease invaded. And Job began this long season of personal suffering. And if you read his story, it's just awful. And at first he had a God-centered perspective to it all. God gives and God takes away. Either way, may God's name be praised. But the troubles persisted, and Job began to do what we often do. He tried to wrap his finite mind around the actions of the infinite. He tried to make sense of it all. But even more than trying to make sense of it all, he came up with what he thought was the explanation for why the hard things had happened. And eventually, three of his friends show up and they all share their ignorance with Job. They offer all sorts of explanations and all sorts of reasons why Job is suffering. And the gist of their perspective is retributive justice. Meaning this, you must have done something wrong, Job, 
And now God is punishing you. So come clean. What'd you do? Tell us. Tell him. And maybe he'll stop punishing you. So you did something wrong and now you're getting justice. He's paying you back. And after they'd peppered him with all their advice, a younger friend named Elihu comes and gives his advice. It's in chapters 32 to 37 of the book of Job. And some of what this guy says is rather insightful and rather helpful. But finally, God is fed up listening to self-appointed experts trying to describe him and trying to describe how he works and trying to describe his plan and trying to describe his purposes. And God finally says, okay, you've all had your chance. Now I'm going to talk. In the original Hebrew, you can look at it, God actually says to Job, shut your pie hole and listen. (laughs) Not really. And so begins a few chapters of what is sometimes called the divine speeches. And God asks 70 questions of Job in these speeches. And the one question we're considering today is Job 38 and verse 4. Where were you? When I laid the earth's foundation. Think of any complaint. Any God why question. Any moment of your life. Resembling Jim Carrey in Bruce Almighty. Any fist shaking accusation. We might lob against God. And then just simply hear and feel God's question in reply. Where were you? When I laid the earth's foundation. God's question to Job stirs something in me. When we planned this series out a while back and we came to this and this one came up, it just did something to me just looking at it. It grabs my attention, this question. God is not shaming Job for asking questions or for trying to sort out the reason for his troubles. He's not screaming at Job as if to kind of quiet him. He's not shushing Job in this shaming sense. But this question God asks gets me because it jars me out of my typical mindset that my life, my challenges, my aches, my pains, my disappointments, my hurts, my preferences here in 2019 in Folsom, California are somehow the center of this universe. This question snaps me out of the self-absorbed trance in which I seem to live much of my life. As if my happiness and my satisfaction and my fulfillment was the primary concern of the universe or of God. God's question reminds me of something I need a regular reminder of. I could say it really simply. He is God and I am not. So more specifically, his question reminds me He is a wild and beautiful God. In the great words of a theologian named Catherine Schifferdecker, I urge you to say that fast three times. She writes these words, you can follow on the screen. God does not address Job's situation or Job's questions about justice. God does not even acknowledge Job's suffering. Instead, God takes Job on a whirlwind tour of the cosmos Beginning with the foundation of the earth and the birth of the sea, God spends a lot of time where the wild things are, describing all kinds of fierce and untamed creatures, lions, mountain goats, deer, 
wild donkeys and oxen, ostriches, eagles, and two primordial chaos monsters, Behemoth and Leviathan. The speeches of God at the end of the book of Job leave many readers dissatisfied. We want God to tell Job about the wager with the Satan. We want God to apologize for all of Job's suffering. We want God to be at least, well, comforting. Instead, in the words of William Sapphire, it's as if God appears in a tie-dyed shirt emblazoned with the words, because I'm God. That's why. Wow. I'm God. That's why. And I don't know about you, but I regularly need that reminder. This kind of declaration about what is and the way things are. These kinds of declarations about this is the way it is because I'm God. These are not, uh, these are not common in today's world because in today's world, whatever works for you is good for you and true for you. But this here, this is God in Job 38. This is God playing the I'm God card. This is God as God. Instead of God as our well-trained puppy who comes running when we call to him. This is a wild and beautiful God who specializes in out-of-the-box ideas and actions that frequently cut against the grain of our expectations of God and, strangely, of our requirements of God. This is God of the wild, or if you will, the God of whipping wind and driving rain and whiteout blizzards and hurricanes and tornadoes. That is a wild God, a beautiful God, a majestic God, and mostly an unmanageable God and an uncontrollable God. One of the real temptations I think we face is the ongoing temptation of thinking we have God figured out. He's a connect-the-dots God. You know how that is. One goes to two, two goes to three, three goes to four, 900 goes to 901, and then we step back and the picture on the paper depicts what God is like. We're tempted to box God in and box him up. We manage God. We create formulas about how he functions. And we base these formulas on a couple of Bible verses and our own experience. And this is exactly what the friends of Job did. They assumed they knew the why behind Job's sufferings. So they tried to explain what was happening in Job's life through an old and popular formula that went something like this. This is happening to you, Job, because you sinned. You messed up. So God is punishing you. We're tempted to fall into this kind of thing. It's domesticating God. It's solving all of his mystery. Or maybe this image helps. We clip a leash to God's neck and we take him out for walks. And he heals and sits and lays down on command. And in the process, we tame God's wildness. Or so we think. And the point is not to say that everything is a mystery. And the point is not to say that nothing can be known about God. I'm not saying that at all. The point is God is far more than our formulas. He's greater than our ideas about him. He's greater than our descriptions of him. The Bible gives us truth about him for sure, but it does not give a connect-the-dots portrait of him. God does not fit in our boxes. The limitations of our minds make it impossible to fully comprehend his thoughts and his ways. 
As Isaiah says, his thoughts are higher than our thoughts and his ways are higher than our ways. And I'll say it again. I need this reminder. I need this reminder on a regular basis. I need to remember that when we start delving into this, boom, the lid goes off and the vastness of who God is starts to appear. And I'm simply in awe of it. I need to remember God is God. And I'm not. If we took all of our collective years of reading and studying and thinking about who God is and how God operates and how this situation works and what God's doing in that situation, if we pooled all of our collective reading and studying and thinking about who God is and how He works, it would not add up to even 1% of who He actually is. I just love this scene in Job 38. God listens to all these people come pontificate about who he is and what he's like and why such and such has happened. And finally, you kind of get this picture in your head. It's as though God just kind of graciously rolls his eyes as if to say, these knuckleheads. And he says to Job, and this all comes out of Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone? Who shut the seas up behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you? Here we are. Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you know the time they give birth? Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its ropes? Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger? At night, do you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom? and spread its wings toward the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? Then God says, will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Do you have an arm like God's? And can your voice thunder like His? And in all of this, I have this picture in my mind of Job slowly lowering his fist of protest 
putting his hand over his mouth. As his self-fixation fades, he slowly, slowly lowers himself to his knees and he bows in awe of the one who created and sustains and rules over all. I need the reminder. One of Job's friends, this guy Elihu, put it this way, how great is God beyond our understanding? He also said, the Almighty is beyond our reach and exalted in power. And one more. He said, if it were, if it were His intention and He withdrew His spirit and breath, all of humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. I need this reminder. Why? Because if I just sit there for five seconds, all of a sudden I go, oh boy, humility, worship, worshiping the King, bowing before Him, orienting my life toward Him, kneeling and exalting Him. He is God and I'm not. But this reminds me as well uh, of a wild and beautiful goodness comes jumping out of this story of Job. A wild and beautiful goodness. Job spends a ton of time and energy and words complaining to God about his suffering. He accuses God of abandoning him. He claims God is punishing him unjustly. It's a fascinating read because it's so perfectly human. And I and probably you have done the same thing many times. God, why this? God, why that? And you know what? The questions are good. We've got to bear this in mind. The questions are good. The questions are real. The questions are part of an authentic quest to actually find the real God. And God invites the questions. And he dwells with us in the questions. But Job's questions morphed into accusations, finger-pointing. How dare you kind of stuff. And here's the thing. That's still okay. I mean, the Psalms are filled with these kinds of laments and these kinds of groans. But if we read the whole book of Job, we realize something, and that's this. Job spends all sorts of energy reciting his resume of goodness to prove to God he's being treated unfairly. Chapters 29 through 31 in particular outline this Job rant Against God. And in those chapters, he lays out all the reasons why God is being unfair. And if you read it, it becomes clear Job is really impressed with himself. I've done this. I've done that. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. He's really impressed with how righteous and how good he is. And I mean, is that not a trap for those who profess to love God? That kind of holier than you. Righteousness is the very thing that turns people in mass away from God and away from the church. We see this all the time. Self-righteousness. Christians who are proud of their goodness and blind to their weakness. Christians who are experts on the imperfections of everyone else except themselves. Job's friends said his suffering was because he had sinned 
and God was punishing him. And whole movements within the Christian faith have sprung up around this kind of retributive justice philosophy and theology, meaning God punishes those who do wrong. He pays them back for their sins. So trouble of whatever kind is God's payback. And this is just a slippery slope headed straight to a petty God who's easily offended and who seeks revenge. So God ends up looking and sounding just like one of us times 10,000. And it doesn't take very long to see if God is actually this way, then he can't be God in any meaningful sense of the understanding of the word God. The most compelling reason, I think, for Job's suffering is Job's formation. That is, his suffering is intended to strip him of every ounce of pride and status and trophy so he experientially knows who he is, knows who God is, and actually knows God more deeply. And this, I would contend, is the beginning of authentic and true goodness and righteousness. See, these days, for various reasons, many of them good reasons, the word righteous often signals something unattractive and unappealing and undesirable. Just think about, well, they're righteous. They're a righteous person. I know there's some cool way to use the word, but I don't know how to do that. So we're going to stick with this idea that calling someone righteous or thinking of someone's righteousness is typically unattractive, unappealing, undesirable. It signals judgmental. It signals fake. It signals perhaps rule followers who love to hate and love to oppose, and love to draw lines, marking who is in, and marking who is out, and marking who is good, and marking who is bad. Job presented God with his goodness resume, and he essentially said, how can you possibly punish me when I've been so devoted to you? I mean, this is the ugliness of religiosity. But God was up to something through Job's suffering, and he's up to something in our suffering, however great or however small those sufferings may be. And what he's up to ultimately is to strip us of self-reliance, to strip us of pride, to strip us of any thought that we're all that, to strip us, to use the words in Job 38, of obscuring God's plans with words without knowledge. And to help us move from knowing about God to actually knowing God. And third, this whole story and passage makes me think of a wild and beautiful faith. I have a confession to make. And it's funny how these things go. I had no idea that one of the key words in many of the songs we were singing today was the word hallelujah. So take that and know that I wasn't targeting this because of that. So here's the confession. Sometimes the picture of faith portrayed by those who claim to have it is a rather underwhelming picture, in my opinion. Sometimes Christians embody a brand of faith that to me seems narrow and restrictive and suffocating and stifling. Faith seems like an obligation rather than a delight. It seems like a bore rather than a joy. It seems like a trigonometry class rather than a hike on a beautiful trail around a cold and crisp mountain lake. There's an old snarky comment allegedly spoken by Martin Luther way back in the 1500s. Here's what he supposedly said. God would rather hear the curses of the godless than the hallelujahs of the pious. I don't know, that makes sense to me. I mean, it just does. God would rather hear the curses of the godless than the hallelujahs of the pious. There's something about the whole arena 
of church and faith and religion and Christianity that can breed this sort of suffocating, deadening, wooden, stiff, rigid, do's and don'ts, oppositional kind of a thing we call faith. And it's just not all that compelling. And what jumps out of this question God asks Job is something like this. God's saying, you've got no idea how great and good I am. You have no idea how big and beautiful I am. And you have no idea how majestic and marvelous life with me can be. So let me take you on a tour of the cosmos. Let me show you what you may think to be the most obscure thing in nature. And let me show you how what is happening there in nature is a testimony to who I am and to the life I'm inviting people to experience. A testimony of the freedom to be exactly what you were created to be, like the horse chewing up the ground as it gallops across the earth. That's God creating the horse to be that way, to gallop in that way, to be exactly who it was intended to be. That whole business of untying the donkey and setting it free is to say it's been restricted, it's been contained, it's carrying people around. That's not why it was created. It was created to roam green hills and wander in green pastures. You have no idea how great and good I am. You have no idea how big and beautiful I am. You have no idea how majestic and marvelous life with me can be. So I'm going to blow the roof off. I'm going to rip open the box you've got me in. And I'm going to take you on a tour and show you who I am and what life in me can be like. When I read God's description of the wildness and the freedom of the world He created and the animals who run free in this world that He watches over and provides for, I hear of a kind of wild life and faith that absolutely calls out to the deepest regions of my soul. Forget the stifling thing. Forget the who's in, who's out. Forget the lines. Forget all this rigidity. Forget all this, you know what, we got to oppose this and fight against that. There's some part for those things, but that is not the life of faith that God invites us into. And that is not the life of faith that your soul hungers to see and to experience. At the sound of God's thunderous voice, and at the sheer beauty of his vision. All the rigid and stiff molds shatter into a million pieces. Gone is faith that pinches and squeezes and reduces everything to petty fights about what is right and what is wrong. Gone is a faith that relishes the drawing of lines to determine who's in and who's out, who's right and who's wrong. Gone is a faith of duty and obligation, and gone is a faith that is mostly stuck in the head. Knowledge about God. Descriptions about God. Adjectives to describe God. Connect the dots so we can say, well, that's what God is like. Instead of knowledge of God. Actually meeting Him. Encountering Him. Knowing Him, hearing Him, following Him, stumbling constantly, getting up, lifting the head, and seeing His love invite us to continue. A vibrant faith. 
A winsome faith. A compelling faith. A soul-stirring faith. And I assure you, a faith that when it is lived out by a community of people who have said, this is what we believe and this is who we are, it is a faith that this world will look upon in a group of people and go, what is that? They may not see it, but the lid of the box is being ripped open. And they're seeing something that is captivating to them because like the horse galloping across empty terrain, this is what human beings were meant to be. To be in relationship with God. To not know about Him. Theorize about Him. Talk about Him. But to actually experience Him. A faith that trusts God. Really trusts God. Even when, like Job, the sky goes dark over our lives. What God was cultivating in Job was this kind of faith. Not, here's how good I am. Not, oh, I'm this. None of that. The kind of faith that says, my life is in God's hands. And come what may, dark clouds, rain, hail, sleet, whatever, whatever, I will trust Him. And we come to the end of the book and I'll end with this. We come to Job 42. God has talked. At one point, Job says, you know what, you're right. Uh, you got me, I'm, you're right. And God basically says, brace yourself, I'm not done. And he keeps on going. And then we finally come to the end, Job chapter 42. And this is what it says. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. And here's the key thing Job says. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know why I need this? Because my ears hear about this all the time and I'm yapping about this all the time. But my eyes were made to see God, to experience Him, to know Him, to be in relationship with Him. And when those dark clouds come, whatever form they may take, and when there's suffering, when there's struggle, when there's difficulty, when plans don't work out, when things get a curveball we can't hit, we come back to this, my eyes had heard of Him, but or my ears had heard of Him, but now my eyes have seen You. And I trust You. No matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is our great, glorious delight to ponder your greatness and your glory. To set aside all of the whys and all the hurdles and all the obstacles and all the things that trip us up. And simply to step back, rip the lid off the box, look up into the vastness of who you are. And consider that you are the God who is great, who is almighty and all-powerful. And yet, you are the God who has come to us.
and dwelt among us and walked this earth and dirtied your feet and you suffered and you bled and you died to show us who you actually are and the lids have been flying off ever since. We celebrate your presence among us through your word, through your spirit, through one another. We celebrate the joy, the greatness, the celebration of you being the king. And we continue to pray that in our own adventure, alone and together, that we will go further up and further in, that we will not settle for hearing of you. We will continue to look so that we might see you and experience you. And we pray all this with gratitude and humility and celebration in Jesus' name. Amen.